Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily recording that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. We are reading chapters 13 and 14 of The Life and Achievements of Don Quixote de la Mancha. Don Quixote is a Spanish epic novel by Miguel de Cervantes. Originally published in two parts, in 1605 and 1615, its full title is The Ingenious Gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha. A founding work of Western literature, it is often labeled as the first modern novel and one of the greatest works ever written. Don Quixote is also one of the most translated books in the world. If you enjoy our program, please leave us feedback on your podcast platform and share it with a friend. You might both sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triplez.media. That's three z's.media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account zzz underscore media underscore podcast. Today's music was brought to you by The Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 13 Of what befell Don Quixote in the Sierra Morena, being one of the most extraordinary adventures related in this faithful history. Don Quixote, finding himself thus ill-requited, said to his squire, Sancho, I have always heard it said that to do good to the vulgar is to throw water into the sea. Had I believed what you said to me, I might have prevented this trouble, but it is done, I must have patience, and henceforth take warning. Your worship will as much take warning, answered Sancho, as I am a Turk, but since you say that if you had believed me this mischief would have been prevented, believe me now, and you will avoid what is still worse, for, let me tell you, there is no putting off the Holy Brotherhood with chivalries, they do not care two farthings for all the knights errant in the world, and I fancy already that I hear their arrows whizzing about my ears. Thou art naturally a coward, Sancho, said Don Quixote, but that thou mayest not say I am obstinate, and that I never do what thou advisest, I will for once take thy counsel and retire from that fury of which thou art in so much fear, but upon this one condition, that, neither living nor dying, thou shalt ever say that I retired and withdrew myself from this peril out of fear, but that I did it out of mere compliance with thy entreaties. Sir, answered Sancho, retreating is not running away, nor is staying wisdom when the danger overbalances the hope, and it is the part of wise men to secure themselves today for tomorrow, and not to venture all upon one throw. And know that, although I am but a clown and a peasant, I yet have some smattering of what is called good conduct, therefore repent not of having taken my advice, but get upon Rosinante if you can, if not I will assist you, and follow me, for my head tells me that, for the present, we have more need of heels than hands. Don Quixote mounted without replying a word more, and, Sancho leading the way upon his ass, they entered on one side of the Sierra Morena, which was near, and it was Sancho's intention to pass through it and get out at Viso or Almodovar del Campo, and there hide themselves for some days among those craggy rocks in case the Holy Brotherhood should come in search of them. He was encouraged to this by finding that the provisions carried by his ass had escaped safe from the skirmish with the galley slaves, which he looked upon as a miracle considering what the slaves took away and how narrowly they searched. 
That night they got into the heart of the Sierra Morena, where Sancho thought it would be well to pass the remainder of the night, if not some days, or at least as long as their provisions lasted. But destiny so ordered it that Guinness de Passamont, whom the valor and frenzy of Don Quixote had delivered from the chain, being justly afraid of the Holy Brotherhood, took it into his head to hide himself among those very mountains where Don Quixote and Sancho Panza had taken refuge. Now, as the wicked are always ungrateful, Guinness, who had neither gratitude nor good nature, resolved to steal Sancho Panza's ass, not caring for Rosinante as a thing neither pawnable nor saleable. Sancho Panza slept, the varlet stole his ass, and, before dawn of day, was too far off to be recovered. Aurora issued forth, giving joy to the earth, but grief to Sancho Panza, who, when he missed his dapple, began to utter the most doleful lamentations, insomuch that Don Quixote awaked at his cries, and heard him say, O oh, darling of my heart, born in my house, the joy of my children, the entertainment of my wife, the envy of my neighbors, the relief of my burdens, and lastly, the half of my maintenance. For, with the six and twenty maravedis which I have earned every day by thy means have I half supported my family. Don Quixote, on learning the cause of these lamentations, comforted Sancho in the best manner he could, and desired him to have patience promising to give him a bill of exchange for three asses out of five which he had left at home. Sancho, comforted by this promise, wiped away his tears, moderated his sighs, and thanked his master for the kindness he shewed him. Don Quixote's heart gladdened upon entering among the mountains, being the kind of situation he thought likely to furnish those adventures he was in quest of. They recalled to his memory the marvelous events which had befallen knights errant in such solitudes and deserts. He went on meditating on these things, and his mind was so absorbed in them that he thought of nothing else. Nor had Sancho any other concern than to appease his hunger with what remained of the clerical spoils, and thus he jogged after his master, emptying the bag and stuffing his paunch and while so employed, he would not have given two Maravedis for the rarest adventure that could have happened. While thus engaged, he raised his eyes and observed that his master, who had stopped, was endeavoring, with the point of his lance, to raise something that lay on the ground, upon which he hastened to assist him, if necessary, and came up to him just as he had turned over with his lance a saddle cushion and a portmanteau fastened to it, half, or rather quite, rotten and torn but so heavy that Sancho was forced to stoop down in order to take it up. His master ordered him to examine it. Sancho very readily obeyed, and although the portmanteau was secured with its chain and padlock, he could see through the chasms what it contained, which was four fine holland shirts and other linen, no less curious than clean, and in a handkerchief he found a quantity of gold crowns, which he no sooner espied than he exclaimed, blessed be heaven, which has presented us with one profitable adventure. And, searching further, he found a little pocketbook, richly bound, which Don Quixote desired to have, bidding him take the money and keep it for himself. Sancho kissed his hands for the favor, and, taking the linen out of the portmanteau, he put it in the provender bag. All this was perceived by Don Quixote, who said, I am of opinion, Sancho, nor can it possibly be otherwise, that some traveler must have lost his way in these mountains and fallen into the hands of robbers who have killed him and brought him to this remote part to bury him. It cannot be so, 
answered Sancho, for had they been robbers, they would not have left this money here. Thou art in the right, said Don Quixote, and I cannot conjecture what it should be, but stay, let us see whether this pocketbook has anything written in it that may lead to a discovery. He opened it, and the first thing he found was a rough copy of verses, and, being legible, he read aloud that Sancho might hear it, the following sonnet. I love either cruelest or blind, or still unequal to the causes this distemper of the mind that with infernal torture gnaws. 2. Of all my sufferings and my woe is Chloe, then, the fatal source, sure ill from good can never flow, or so much beauty gild a curse. From Smollett's translation. From those verses, quoth Sancho, nothing can be collected, unless, from the clue they're given, you can come at the whole bottom. What clue is here? said Don Quixote. I thought, said Sancho, your worship named a clue. No, I said Chloe, answered Don Quixote, and doubtless that is the name of the lady of whom the author of this sonnet complains, and, in faith, either he is a tolerable poet or I know but little of the art. So, then, said Sancho, your worship understands making verses too. Yes, and better than thou thinkest, answered Don Quixote, and so thou shalt see when thou bearest a letter to my lady Dulcinea del Toboso in verse, for know, Sancho, that all or most of the knights errant of times past were great poets and great musicians, these two accomplishments, or rather graces, being annexed to lovers errant. True it is that the couplets of former knights have more of passion than elegance in them. Pray, sir, read on farther, said Sancho, perhaps you may find something to satisfy us. Don Quixote turned over the leaf and said, this is in prose and seems to be a letter. A letter of business, sir, demanded Sancho. By the beginning, it seems rather to be one of love, answered Don Quixote. Then pray, sir, read it aloud, said Sancho, for I mightily relish these love matters. With all my heart, said Don Quixote, and reading aloud, as Sancho desired, he found it to this effect. Thy broken faith and my certain misery drive me to a place whence thou wilt sooner hear the news of my death than the cause of my complaint. Thou hast renounced me, O ungrateful maid, for one of larger possessions, but not of more worth than myself. What thy beauty excited, thy conduct has erased, by the former I thought thee an angel, by the latter I know thou art a woman. Peace be to thee, fair cause of my disquiet. The letter being read, Don Quixote said, we can gather little more from this than from the verses. It is evident, however, that the writer of them is some slighted lover. Then, turning over other parts of the book, he found other verses and letters, but the purport was the same in all, their sole contents being reproaches, lamentations, suspicions, desires, dislikings, favors, and slights, interspersed with rapturous praises and mournful complaints. While Don Quixote was examining the book, Sancho examined the portmanteau without leaving a corner which he did not scrutinize, nor seam which he did not rip, nor lock of wool which he did not carefully pick that nothing might be lost through carelessness, such was the cupidity excited in him by the discovery of this golden treasure consisting of more than a hundred crowns. 
and although he could find no more, he thought himself abundantly rewarded for the tossings in the blanket, the loss of the wallet, and the theft of his cloak, together with all the hunger, thirst, and fatigue he had suffered in his good master's service. The knight of the sorrowful figure was extremely desirous to know who was the owner of the portmanteau, but as no information could be expected in that rugged place, he had only to proceed, taking whatever road Rosinante pleased, and still thinking that among the rocks he should certainly meet with some strange adventure. As he went onward, impressed with this idea, he espied, on the top of a rising ground not far from him, a man springing from rock to rock with extraordinary agility. Don Quixote immediately conceived that this must be the owner of the portmanteau, and resolved therefore to go in search of him even though it should prove a twelve-month's labor in that wild region. He immediately commanded Sancho to cut short over one side of the mountain while he skirted the other as they might possibly by this expedition find the man who had so suddenly vanished from their sight. To which Sancho replied, it would be much more prudent not to look after him for if we should find him and he, perchance, proves to be the owner of the money, it is plain I must restore it and therefore it would be better to preserve it faithfully until its owner shall find us out, by which time, perhaps, I may have spent it, and then I am free by law. Therein thou art mistaken, Sancho, answered Don Quixote, for since we have a vehement suspicion of who is the right owner, it is our duty to seek him and to return it, otherwise that suspicion makes us no less guilty than if he really were so. Then he pricked Rosinante on, when, having gone round part of the mountain, they found a dead mule, saddled and bridled, which confirmed them in the opinion that he who fled from them was owner both of the mule and the portmanteau. While they stood looking at the mule, a goat herd descended, and, coming to the place where Don Quixote stood, he said, I suppose, gentlemen, you are looking at the dead mule? In truth, it has now lain there these six months. Pray tell me, have you met with his master hereabouts? We have met with nothing, answered Don Quixote, but a saddle cushion and a small portmanteau, which we found not far hence. I found it too, answered the goat herd, but would by no means take it up, nor come near it, for fear of some mischief and of being charged with theft, for the devil is subtle and lays stumbling blocks in our way, over which we fall without knowing how. Tell me, honest man, said Don Quixote, do you know who is the owner of these goods? What I know, said the goat herd, is that six months ago there came to a shepherd's hut, three leagues from this place, a genteel and comely youth mounted on the very mule which lies dead there. He inquired which of these mountains was the most unfrequented. We told him it was where we now are, and so it is truly, for if you were to go on about half a league farther, perhaps you would never find the way out, and I wonder how you could get even hither since there is no road nor path to lead you to it. The youth, hearing our answer, turned about and made towards the part we pointed out, leaving us all pleased with his goodly appearance and wondering at his question and at the haste he made to reach the mountain. From that time we saw him not again until, some days after, he issued out upon one of our shepherds and, without saying a word, struck him and immediately fell upon our sumpter ass, which he plundered of our bread and cheese and then fled again to the rocks with wonderful swiftness. Some of us sought for him nearly two days and at last found him lying in the hollow of a large cork tree.
He came out to us with much gentleness, his garment torn, and his face so disfigured and scorched by the sun that we should scarcely have known him, but that his clothes, ragged as they were, convinced us he was the person we were in search after. He saluted us, and in few but civil words bid us not be surprised to see him in that condition, which was necessary in order to perform a certain penance enjoined him for his sins. We entreated him to tell us who he was, but could get no more from him. We also desired him to inform us where he might be found, because when he stood in need of food, we would willingly bring some to him. He thanked us and begged pardon for his past violence and promised to ask it for God's sake without molesting anybody. As to the place of his abode, he said he had only that which chance presented him wherever the night overtook him, and he ended his discourse with so many tears that we must have been very stones not to have wept with him, considering what he was when we first saw him, for, as I before said, he was a very comely and graceful youth, and by his courteous behavior shewed himself to be well-born. We judged that his mad fit was coming on, and our suspicions were quickly confirmed, for he suddenly darted forward and fell with great fury upon one that stood next him, whom he bit and struck with so much violence that, if we had not released him, he would have taken away his life. In the midst of his rage, he frequently called out, Ah, traitor Fernando! Now shalt thou pay for the wrong thou hast done me, these hands shall tear out that heart, the dark dwelling of deceit and villainy. We disengaged him from our companion at last, with no small difficulty, upon which he suddenly left us and plunged into a thicket so entangled with bushes and briars that it was impossible to follow him. By this we guessed that his madness returned by fits and that some person, whose name is Fernando, must have done him some injury of so grievous a nature as to reduce him to the wretched condition in which he appeared and in that we have since been confirmed, as he has frequently come out into the road, sometimes begging food of the shepherds, and at other times taking it from them by force, for when the mad fit is upon him, though the shepherds offer it freely, he will not take it without coming to blows, but when he is in his senses, he asks it with courtesy, and receives it with thanks, and even with tears. In truth, gentlemen, I must tell you, pursued the goat herd, that yesterday I and four young men, two of them my servants and two my friends, resolved to go in search of him, and, having found him either by persuasion or force carry him to the town of Almodovar, which is eight leagues off, there to get him cured, if his distemper be curable, or at least to learn who he is, and whether he has any relations to whom we may give notice of his misfortune. This, gentlemen, is all I can tell you, in answer to your inquiry, by which you may understand that the owner of the goods you found is the same wretched person who passed you so quickly, for Don Quixote had told him that he had seen a man leaping about the rocks. Don Quixote was surprised at what he heard, and being now still more desirous of knowing who the unfortunate madman was, he renewed his determination to search every part of the mountain until he should find him. But fortune managed better for him than he expected, for at that very instant the youth appeared descending and muttering to himself something which was not intelligible. The rags he wore were such as have been described, but as he drew near, Don Quixote perceived that his buff doublet, though torn to pieces, still retained the perfume of amber, whence he concluded that he could not possibly be of low condition. When he came up, he saluted them in a harsh and untuned voice, but with a civil air. 
Don Quixote politely returned the salute with graceful demeanor and advanced to embrace him and held him a considerable time clasped within his arms as if they had been long acquainted. The other, whom we may truly call the tattered knight of the Wiffle, as Don Quixote was of the sorrowful figure, having suffered himself to be embraced, drew back a little and laying his hands on Don Quixote's shoulders, stood contemplating him as if to ascertain whether he knew him and perhaps no less surprised at the aspect, demeanor, and habiliments of the knight than was Don Quixote at the sight of him. In short, the first who broke silence after this prelude was the tattered knight and what he said shall be told in the next chapter. Chapter 14 A Continuation of the Adventure in the Sierra Morena Don Quixote listened to the tattered knight of the mountain who thus addressed himself to him, Assuredly, Senior, whoever you are, I am obliged to you for the courtesy you have manifested towards me, and I wish it were in my power to serve you with more than my goodwill, which is all that my fate allows me to offer in return for your civility. So great is my desire to do you service, answered Don Quixote, that I had determined to learn from yourself whether your affliction, which is evident by the strange life you lead, may admit of any remedy, and, if so, make every possible exertion to procure it. I conjure you also by whatever in this life you love most, to tell me who you are, and what has brought you hither, to live and die like a brute beast amidst these solitudes, and abode, if I may judge from your person and attire, so unsuitable to you. And I swear, added Don Quixote, by the order of knighthood I have received, though unworthy and a sinner, to remedy your misfortune or assist you to bewail it as I have already promised. The knight of the mountain, hearing him talk thus, could only gaze upon him, viewing him from head to foot, and, after surveying him again and again, he said to him, if you have anything to give me to eat, for God's sake let me have it, and when I have eaten, I will do all you desire, in return for the good wishes you have expressed towards me. Sancho immediately took from his wallet some provisions, wherewith the wretched wanderer satisfied his hunger, eating what they gave him like a distracted person, so ravenously that he made no interval between one mouthful and another. When he had finished, he made signs to them to follow him, and having conducted them to a little green plot, he there laid himself down, and the rest did the same. When the tattered knight had composed himself, he said, if you desire that I should tell you the immensity of my misfortunes, you must promise not to interrupt the thread of my doleful history, for in the instant you do so, my narrative will break off. These words brought to Don Quixote's memory the tale related by his squire, which, because he had not reckoned the number of goats that had passed the river, remained unfinished. Don Quixote, in the name of all the rest, promised not to interrupt him, and upon this assurance he began in the following manner. My name is Cardinio, the place of my birth, one of the best cities of Andalusia, my family noble, my parents wealthy, my wretchedness so great that it must have been deplored by my parents, although not to be alleviated by all their wealth, for riches are of little avail in many of the calamities to which mankind are liable. In that city there existed a heaven wherein love had placed all the joy I could desire, such as the beauty of Lucinda, a damsel as well-born and as rich as myself, though more fortunate and less constant than my honorable intentions deserved. This Lucinda I loved and adored from my childhood, and she, on her part, 
loved me with that innocent affection proper to her age. Our parents were not unacquainted with our attachment, nor was it displeasing to them. Our love increased with our years, insomuch that Lucinda's father thought it prudent to restrain my wanted freedom of access to his house, thus imitating the parents of the unfortunate Thisbe, so celebrated by the poets. This restraint served only to increase the ardor of our affection, for though it was in their power to impose silence on our tongues, they could not do the same on our pens, which reveal the secrets of the soul more effectually than even the speech, for the presence of a beloved object often so bewilders and confounds its faculties that the tongue cannot perform its office. Oh heavens, how many billet-doot did I write to her? What charming, what modest answers did I receive? How many sonnets did I pen? At length, my patience being exhausted, I resolved at once to demand her for my lawful wife, which I immediately did. In reply, her father thanked me for the desire I expressed to honor him by an alliance with his family, but that, as my father was living, it belonged more properly to him to make this demand, for without his entire concurrence the act would appear secret and unworthy of his Lucinda. I went therefore directly to him, and found him with a letter open in his hand, which he gave me, saying, By this letter you will see, Cardinio, the inclination Duke Ricardo has to do you service. I read the letter, which was so extremely kind that I thought it would be wrong in my father not to comply with its request, which was, that I should be sent immediately to the Duke, who was desirous of placing me as a companion to his eldest son. The time fixed for my departure came. I conversed the night before with Lucinda, and told her all that had passed, and also entreated her father to wait a few days and not to dispose of her until I knew what Duke Ricardo's pleasure was with me. He promised me all I desired, and she confirmed it with a thousand vows and a thousand faintings. I arrived at the residence of the Duke, who treated me with so much kindness that envy soon became active by possessing his servants with an opinion that every favor the Duke conferred upon me was prejudicial to their interest. But the person most pleased at my arrival was a second son of the Duke, called Fernando, a sprightly young gentleman of a gallant, liberal, and loving disposition who contracted so intimate a friendship with me that it became the subject of general conversation, and though I was treated with much favor by his elder brother, it was not equal to the kindness and affection of Don Fernando. Now as unbounded confidence is always the effect of such intimacy, he revealed to me all his thoughts, and particularly a love matter, which gave him some disquiet. He loved a country girl, the daughter of one of his father's vassals. Her parents were rich, and she herself was so beautiful, discreet, and modest that no one could determine in which of these qualities she most excelled. Don Fernando's passion for this lovely maiden was so excessive that he resolved to promise her marriage. Prompted by friendship, I employed the best arguments I could suggest to divert him from such a purpose but finding it was all in vain, I resolved to acquaint his father, the Duke, with the affair. Don Fernando, being artful and shrewd, suspected and feared no less, knowing that I could not, as a faithful servant, conceal from my lord and master so important a matter, and therefore, to amuse and deceive me, he said that he knew no better remedy for effacing the remembrance of the beauty that had so captivated him than to absent himself for some months 
which he said might be affected by our going together to my father's house under pretense as he would tell the Duke of purchasing horses in our town which is remarkable for producing the best in the world. No sooner had he made this proposal than, prompted by my own love, I expressed my approbation of it as the best that possibly could be devised and should have done so even had it been less plausible since it afforded me so good an opportunity of returning to see my dear Lucinda. At the very time he made this proposal to me he had already, as appeared afterwards, been married to the maiden and only waited for a convenient season to divulge it with safety to himself, being afraid of what the duke his father might do when he should hear of his folly. Now love in young men too often expires with the attainment of its object, and what seems to be love vanishes because it has nothing of the durable nature of true affection. In short, Don Fernando, having obtained possession of the country girl, his love grew faint and his fondness abetted, so that, in reality, that absence which he proposed as a remedy for his passion, he only chose in order to avoid what was now no longer agreeable to him. The Duke consented to his proposal and ordered me to bear him company. We reached our city and my father received him according to his quality. I immediately visited Lucinda, my passion revived, though, in truth, it had been neither dead nor asleep, and unfortunately for me, I revealed it to Don Fernando, thinking that, by the laws of friendship, nothing should be concealed from him. I expatiated so much on the beauty, grace, and discretion of Lucinda that my praises excited in him a desire of seeing a damsel endowed with such accomplishments. Unhappily, I consented to gratify him and shoot her to him one night by the light of a taper at a window where we were accustomed to converse together. He beheld her and every beauty he had hitherto seen was cast into oblivion. From that time I began to fear and suspect him for he was every moment talking of Lucinda and would begin the subject himself, however abruptly, which awakened in me I know not what jealousy and though I feared no change in the goodness and fidelity of Lucinda, yet I could not but dread the very thing against which they seemed to secure me. He also constantly importuned me to shew him the letters I wrote to Lucinda, as well as her answers, which I did, and he pretended to be extremely delighted with both. Now it happened that Lucinda, having desired me to lend her a book of chivalry, of which she was very fond, entitled Amadis de Gaulle. Scarcely had Don Quixote heard him mention a book of chivalry when he said, Had you told me, sir, at the beginning of your story, that the Lady Lucinda was fond of reading books of chivalry, no more would have been necessary to convince me of the sublimity of her understanding. I pronounce her to be the most beautiful and the most ingenious woman in the world. Pardon me, sir, for having broken my promise by this interruption, but when I hear of matters appertaining to knights errant and chivalry, I can as well forbear talking of them as the beams of the sun can cease to give heat or those of the moon to moisten. Pray, therefore, excuse me and proceed, for that is of most importance to us at present. While Don Quixote was saying all this, Cardinio hung down his head upon his breast, apparently in profound thought, and although Don Quixote twice desired him to continue his story, he neither lifted up his head nor answered a word. But after some time he raised it 
and uttering some disloyalty against Queen Modassima, one of the heroines of the Don's books of chivalry. It is false, I swear, answered Don Quixote in great wrath. It is extreme malice, or rather villainy, to say so, and whoever asserts it lies like a very rascal, and I will make him know it, on foot or on horseback, armed or unarmed, by night or by day, or how he pleases. Cardinio, being now mad, and hearing himself called liar and villain, with other such opprobrious names, did not like the jest, and catching up a stone that lay close by him, he threw it with such violence at Don Quixote's breast that it threw him on his back. Sancho Panza, seeing his master treated in this manner, attacked the madman with his clenched fist, and the tattered knight received him in such sort that, with one blow, he laid him at his feet, and then trampled upon him to his heart's content. The goatherd, who endeavored to defend him, fared little better, and when the madman had sufficiently vented his fury upon them all, he left them and quietly retired to his rocky haunts among the mountains. Sancho got up in a rage to find himself so roughly handled and was proceeding to take revenge on the goatherd, telling him the fault was his for not having given the warning that this man was subject to these mad fits, for had they known it, they might have been upon their guard. The goatherd answered that he had given them notice of it and that the fault was not his. Sancho Panza replied, the goatherd rejoined, and the replies and rejoinders ended in taking each other by the beard and coming to such blows that, if Don Quixote had not interposed, they would have demolished each other. But Sancho still kept fast hold of the goatherd and said, Let me alone, Sir Knight, for this fellow being a bumpkin like myself and not a knight, I may very safely revenge myself by fighting with him hand to hand like a man of honor. True, said Don Quixote, but I know that he is not to blame for what has happened. Hereupon Sancho was pacified, and Don Quixote again inquired of the goatherd whether it were possible to find out Cardinio, for he had a vehement desire to learn the end of his story. The goatherd told him, as before, that he did not exactly know his haunts, but that, if he waited some time about that part, he would not fail to meet him either in or out of his senses. Don Quixote took his leave of the goatherd, and, mounting Rosinante, commanded Sancho to follow him, which he did very unwillingly. They proceeded slowly on, making their way into the most difficult recesses of the mountain. In the meantime, Sancho was dying to converse with his master, but would fain have had him begin the discourse that he might not disobey his orders. Being, however, unable to hold out any longer, he said to him, Senior Don Quixote, be pleased to give me your worship's blessing and my dismission for I will get home to my wife and children, with whom I shall at least have the privilege of talking and speaking my mind, for it is very hard, and not to be borne with patience, for a man to ramble about all his life in quest of adventures, and to meet with nothing but kicks and cuffs, tossings in a blanket, and bangs with stones, and, with all. This, to have his mouth sewed up, not daring to utter what he has in his heart, as if he were dumb. I understand thee, Sancho, answered Don Quixote, thou art impatient until I take off the embargo I have laid on thy tongue. Suppose it, then, removed, and thou art permitted to say what thou wilt, upon condition that this revocation is to last no longer than whilst we are wandering among these rocks. Be it so, said Sancho, let me talk now, for we know not what will be hereafter. And now, 
Taking the benefit of this license, I ask what had your worship to do with standing up so warmly for that same Queen Majamesa, or what's her name? For had you let that pass, I verily believe the madman would have gone on with his story and you would have escaped the thump with the stone, the kicks, and above half a dozen buffets. In faith, Sancho, answered Don Quixote, if thou didst but know, as I do, how honorable and how excellent a lady Queen Medassimo was, I am certain thou wouldst acknowledge that I had a great deal of patience in forbearing to dash to pieces that mouth out of which such blasphemies issued, and to prove that Cardinio knew not what he spoke, thou mayest remember that when he said it he was not in his senses. That is what I say, quoth Sancho, and therefore no account should have been made of his words, for if good fortune had not befriended your worship and directed the flint stone at your breast instead of your head, we had been in a fine condition for standing up in defense of that dear lady, and Cardinio would have come off unpunished, being insane. Against the sane and insane, answered Don Quixote, it is the duty of a knight errant to defend the honor of women, particularly that of a queen of such exalted worth as Queen Medassima, for whom I have a particular affection on account of her excellent qualities, for, besides being extremely beautiful, she was very prudent and very patient in her afflictions, which were numerous. But prithee, Sancho, peace, and henceforward attend to our matters, and forbear any interference with what doth not concern thee. Be convinced that whatever I have done, do, or shall do, is highly reasonable and exactly conformable to the rules of chivalry, which I am better acquainted with than all the knights who ever professed it in the world. Sir, replied Sancho, is it a good rule of chivalry for us to go wandering through these mountains without either path or road in quest of a madman who, perhaps, when he is found, will be inclined to finish what he began, not his story, but the breaking of your worship's head and my ribs? Peace, Sancho, I repeat, said Don Quixote, for know that it is not only the desire of finding the madman that brings me to these parts, but an intention to perform in them an exploit whereby I shall acquire perpetual fame and renown over the face of the whole earth, and it shall be such an one as shall set the seal to make an accomplished knight errant. And is this exploit a very dangerous one? quoth Sancho. No, answered the knight, although the die may chance to run unfortunately for us, yet the whole will depend upon thy diligence. Upon my diligence, exclaimed Sancho. Yes, said Don Quixote, for if thy return be speedy from the place whither I intend to send thee, my pain will soon be over, and my glory forthwith commence, and that thou mayest no longer be in suspense with regard to the tendency of my words, I inform thee, Sancho, that the famous Amadis de Gaulle was one of the most perfect of knights errant, I should not say one, for he was the sole, the principal, the unique, in short, the prince of all his contemporaries. A fig for Don Belianis, and all those who say that he equaled Amadis in anything, for I swear they are mistaken. I say, moreover, that if a painter would be famous in his art, he must endeavor to copy after the originals of the most excellent masters. The same rule is also applicable to all the other arts and sciences which adorn the commonwealth. Thus, whoever aspires to a reputation for prudence and patience must imitate Ulysses, in whose person and toils Homer draws a lively picture of those qualities, so also Virgil, in the character of Aeneas, delineates filial piety, courage, and martial skill, 
being representations not of what they really were, but of what they ought to be in order to serve as models of virtue to succeeding generations. Thus was Amadis the Polar, the morning star, and the son of all valiant and enamored knights, and whom all we, who militate under the banners of love and chivalry, ought to follow. This being the case, friend Sancho, that knight-errant who best imitates him will be most certain of arriving at preeminence in chivalry. And an occasion upon which this knight particularly displayed his prudence, worth, courage, patience, constancy, and love was his retiring when disdained by the Lady Oriana to do penance on the poor rock, changing his name to that of Beltanebros, a name most certainly significant and proper for the life he had voluntarily chosen. Now it is easier for me to imitate him in this than in cleaving giants, beheading serpents, slaying dragons, routing armies, shattering fleets, and dissolving enchantments, and since this place is so well adapted for the purpose, I had not to neglect the opportunity which is now so commodiously offered to me. What is it your worship really intends to do in so remote a place as this? demanded Sancho. Have I not told thee, answered Don Quixote, that I designed to imitate Amadis, acting here the desperate, raving, and furious lover, at the same time following the example of the valiant Don Orlando with respect to Angelica the Fair, he ran mad, tore up trees by the roots, disturbed the waters of the crystal springs, slew shepherds, destroyed flocks, fired cottages, and an hundred thousand other extravagances worthy of eternal record. And although it is not my design to imitate Orlando in all his frantic actions, words, and thoughts, yet I will give as good a sketch as I can of those which I deem most essential, or I may, perhaps, be content to imitate only Amadis, who, without committing any mischievous excesses, by tears and lamentations alone attained as much fame as all of them. It seems to me, quoth Sancho, that the knights who acted in such manner were provoked to it and had a reason for these follies and penances, but pray what cause has your worship to run mad? What lady has disdained you? Or what have you discovered to convince you that the Lady Dulcinea del Toboso has done you any wrong? There lies the point, answered Don Quixote, and in this consists the refinement of my plan. A knight-errant who runs mad with just cause deserves no thanks, but to do so without this is the point, giving my lady to understand how much more I should perform were there a good reason on her part. But I have cause enough given me by so long an absence from my ever-honored lady Dulcinea del Toboso. Therefore, friend Sancho, counsel me not to refrain from so rare, so happy, and so unparalleled an imitation. Mad I am, and mad I must be, until I return with an answer to a letter I intend to send by thee to my lady Dulcinea, for if good, I shall enjoy it in my right senses, if otherwise, I shall be mad, and consequently insensible of my misfortune. While they were thus discoursing, they arrived at the foot of a high mountain, which stood separated from several others that surrounded it, as if it had been hewn out from them. Near its base ran a gentle stream that watered a verdant and luxurious vale adorned with many wide-spreading trees, plants, and wild flowers of various hues. This was the spot in which the knight of the sorrowful figure chose to perform his penance, and while contemplating the scene, he thus broke forth in a loud voice, This is the place, O ye heavens! 
which I select and appoint for bewailing the misfortune in which I am so cruelly involved. This is the spot where my flowing tears shall increase the waters of this crystal stream, and my sighs, continual and deep, shall incessantly move the foliage of these lofty trees in testimony and token of the pain my persecuted heart endures. O ye rural deities, whoever ye be that inhabit these remote deserts, give ear to the complaints of an unhappy lover whom long absence and some pangs of jealousy have driven to bewail himself among these rugged heights and to complain of the cruelty of that ungrateful fair, the utmost extent and ultimate perfection of human beauty. And, O thou my squire, agreeable companion in my prosperous and adverse fortune, carefully imprint on thy memory what thou shalt see me here perform, that thou mayest recount and recite it to her who is the sole cause of all. Thus saying, he alighted from Rosinante, and in an instant took off his bridle and saddle, and clapping him on the back, said to him, O steed, as excellent for my performances as unfortunate in thy fate, he gives thee liberty who is himself deprived of it. Go whither thou wilt, for thou hast it written on thy forehead that neither Astolfo's hippogriff nor the famous Frentino, which cost Bradamante so dear, could match thee in speed. Sancho, observing all this, said, Blessings be with him who saved us the trouble of unharnessing Dapple, for truly he should have wanted neither slaps nor speeches in his praise. Yet if he were here, I would not consent to his being unpaneled, there being no occasion for it, for he had nothing to do with love or despair any more than I, who was once his master, when it so pleased God. And truly, Sir Knight of the Sorrowful Figure, if it be so that my departure and your madness take place in earnest, it will be well to saddle Rosinante again, that he may supply the loss of my dapple, and save me time in going and coming, for if I walk, I know not how I shall be able either to go or return, being, in truth, but a sorry traveler on foot. Be that as thou wilt, answered Don Quixote, for I do not disapprove thy proposal, and I say thou shalt depart within three days, during which time I intend thee to bear witness of what I do and say for her, that thou mayest report it accordingly. What have I more to see, quoth Sancho, than what I have already seen? So far thou art well prepared, answered Don Quixote, but I have now to rend my garments, scatter my arms about, and dash my head against these rocks, with other things of the like sort, which will strike thee with admiration. Good master, said Sancho, content yourself, I pray you, with running your head against some soft thing, such as cotton, and leave it to me to tell my lady that you dashed your head against the point of a rock harder than a diamond. I thank thee for thy good intentions, friend Sancho, answered Don Quixote, but I would have thee to know that all these actions of mine are no mockery, but done very much in earnest. As for the three days allowed me for seeing your mad pranks, interrupted Sancho, I beseech you to reckon them as already passed, for I take all for granted, and will tell wonders to my lady, do you write the letter, and dispatch me quickly, for I long to come back and release your worship from this purgatory, in which I leave you. But how, said Don Quixote, shall we contrive to write the letter? And the ass-cold bill, added Sancho. Nothing shall be omitted, said Don Quixote, and since we have no paper, we shall do well to write it as the ancients did, on the leaves of trees, or on tablets of wax, though it will be as difficult at present to meet with these as with paper. But, now I recollect, it may be as well, or indeed better, to write it in Cardinio's pocket book, 
and you will take care to get it fairly transcribed upon paper in the first town you reach where there is a schoolmaster. But what must we do about the signing it with your own hand, said Sancho. The letters of Amadis were never subscribed, answered Don Quixote. Very well, replied Sancho, but the order for the cults must needs be signed by yourself, for if that be copied, they will say it is a false signature and I shall be forced to go without the cults. The order shall be signed in the same pocketbook and, at sight of it, my niece will make no difficulty in complying with it. As to the love letter, let it be subscribed thus, yours until death, the night of the sorrowful figure. And it is of little importance whether it be written in another hand, for I remember, Dulcinea has never seen a letter or writing of mine in her whole life, for our loves have always been of the platonic kind, extending no farther than to modest glances at each other, such as the reserve and seclusion in which she is brought up by her father Lorenzo Corchuelo and her mother Aldonza Nogales. Ah, quoth Sancho, the daughter of Lorenzo Corchuelo. Is she the Lady Dulcinea del Toboso, otherwise called Aldonza Lorenzo? It is even she, said Don Quixote, and she deserves to be mistress of the universe. I know her well, quoth Sancho, and I can assure you she will pitch the bar with the loosiest swain in the parish, straight and vigorous, and I warrant can make her part good with any knight-errant that shall have her for his lady. Oh, what a pair of lungs and a voice she has! I remember she got out one day upon the bell tower of the church to call some young pluffmen who were in a field of her father's, and though they were half a league off, they heard her as plainly as if they had stood at the foot of the tower, and the best of her is that she is not at all coy, but as bold as a court lady, and makes a jest and a game of everybody. I say, then, Sir Knight of the Sorrowful Figure, that you not only may and ought to run mad for her, but also you may justly despair and hang yourself, and nobody that hears it but will say you did extremely well. However, I am anxious to see her, for I have not met with her this many a day, and by this time she must needs be altered, for it mightily spoils women's faces to be abroad in the field, exposed to the sun and weather. But, all things considered, what good can it do to the Lady Aldonza Lorenzo, I mean the Lady Dulcinea del Toboso, to have the vanquished whom your worship sends or may send falling upon their knees before her? for perhaps at the time they arrive she may be carting flax or threshing in the barn and they may be confounded at the sight of her and she may laugh and care little for the present. I have often told thee, Sancho, said Don Quixote, that thou art an eternal babbler and though void of wit, thy bluntness often stings, but to convince thee at once of thy folly and my discretion, I will tell thee a short tale. Know, then, that a certain widow, handsome, young, gay, and rich, and withal no prude, fell in love with a young man, handsome, well-made, and active. A relative heard of it, and one day took occasion to speak to the good widow in the way of brotherly reprehension. I wonder, madam, said he, that a woman of your quality, so beautiful and so rich, should fall in love with such a despicable, mean, silly fellow, when there are, in this house, so many graduates, scholars, and dignitaries, among whom you might pick and choose, and say, this I like and this I leave, as you would among pairs. 
but she answered him with great frankness and gaiety, You are much mistaken, worthy sir, and your sentiments are very antiquated. If you imagine that I have made an ill choice in that fellow, silly as he may appear, since, for aught that I desire of him, he knows as much of philosophy as Aristotle himself, if not more. In like manner, Sancho, Dulcinea del Toboso deserves as highly as the greatest princess on earth. For of those poets who have celebrated the praises of ladies under fictitious names, many had no such mistresses. Thinkest thou that the Amaryllises, the Phyllises, the Sylvias, the Dianas, the Galateas, the Aulidas, and the like, famous in books, ballads, barbers' shops, and stage plays, were really ladies of flesh and blood, and beloved by those who have celebrated them? Certainly not, they are mostly feigned to supply subjects for verse and to make the authors pass for men of gallantry. It is therefore sufficient that I think and believe that the good Aldonza Lorenzo is beautiful and modest, and as to her lineage, it matters not, for no inquiry concerning it is requisite, and to me it is unnecessary, as I regard her as the greatest princess in the world. For thou must know, Sancho, that two things, above all others, incite to love, namely, beauty and a good name. Now both these are to be found in perfection in Dulcinea, for in beauty none can be compared to her, and for purity of reputation few can equal her. In fine, I conceive she is exactly what I have described, and everything that I can desire, both as to beauty and quality, unequaled by Helen, or by Lucretia, or any other of the famous women of antiquity, whether Grecian, Roman, or Goth, and I care not what be said, since, if upon this account I am blamed by the ignorant, I shall be acquitted by the wise. Your worship, replied Sancho, is always in the right, and I am an ass. Why do I mention an ass? One should not talk of halters in the house of the hanged. But I am off. Give me the letter, sir, and peace be with you. Don Quixote took out the pocketbook to write the letter, and having finished, he called Sancho, and said he would read it to him, that he might have it by heart, lest he might perchance lose it by the way, for everything was to be feared from his evil destiny. To which Sancho answered, Write it, sir, two or three times in the book, and give it me, and I will take good care of it, but to suppose that I can carry it in my memory is a folly, for mine is so bad that I often forget my own name. Your worship, however, may read it to me, I shall be glad to hear it, for it must needs be very much to the purpose. Listen, then, said Don Quixote, this is what I have written. Don Quixote's letter to Dulcinea del Toboso. High and sovereign lady, he who is stabbed by the point of absence and pierced by the arrows of love, O sweetest Dulcinea del Toboso, greets thee with wishes for that health which he enjoys not himself. If thy beauty despise me, if thy worth favor me not, and if thy disdain still pursue me, although inured to suffering, I shall ill support an affliction which is not only severe but lasting. My good squire Sancho will tell thee, O ungrateful fair and most beloved foe, to what a state I am reduced on my account. If it be thy pleasure to relieve me, I am thine, if not, do what seemeth good to thee, for by my death I shall at once appease thy cruelty and my own passion. Until death thine. The night of this sorrowful figure. By the life of my father, quoth Sancho, 
After hearing the letter, it is the finest thing I ever heard. How choicely your worship expresses whatever you please, and how well you close all with the night of the sorrowful figure. Verily, there is nothing but what you know. The profession which I have embraced, answered Don Quixote, requires a knowledge of everything. Well, then, said Sancho, pray put on the other side the order for the three ascolts and sign it very plain that people may know your hand at first sight. With all my heart, said the knight, and having written it, he read as follows. Dear niece, at sight of this, my first bill of ascolts, give order that three out of the five I left at home in your custody be delivered to Sancho Panza, my squire, which three colts I ordered to be delivered and paid for the like number received of him here in tale, and this, with his acquittance, shall be your discharge. Done in the heart of the Sierra Morena, the 22nd of August, this present year. It is mighty well, said Sancho, now you have only to sign it. It wants no signing, said Don Quixote, I need only put my cipher to it, which is the same thing, and is sufficient, not only for three, but for three hundred asses. I rely upon your worship, answered Sancho, let me go and saddle Rosinante, and prepare to give me your blessing, for I intend to depart immediately, without staying to see the frolics you are about to commit, and I will tell quite enough to satisfy her. But in the meantime, setting that aside, what has your worship to eat until my return? Are you to go upon the highway, to rob the shepherds, like Cardinio? Trouble not yourself about that, answered Don Quixote, for were I otherwise provided, I should eat nothing but the herbs and fruits which here grow wild, for abstinence and other austerities are essential in this affair. Now I think of it, sir, said Sancho, how shall I be able to find my way back again to the spy place? Observe and mark well the spot, and I will endeavor to remain near it, said Don Quixote, and will, moreover, ascend some of the highest ridges to discover thee upon thy return. But the surest way not to miss me, or lose thyself, will be to cut down some of the broom that abounds here, and scatter it here and there, on thy way to the plain, to serve as marks and tokens to guide thee on thy return, in imitation of Theseus's clue to the labyrinth. Sancho Panza followed this counsel, and having provided himself with branches, he begged his master's blessing, and, not without many tears on both sides, took his leave of him, and mounting upon Rosinante, with an especial charge from Don Quixote to regard him as he would his own proper person, he rode towards the plain, strewing the boughs at intervals, as his master had directed him. Underscore 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 underscore